Hello, and welcome to the Humanities Pod. I'm Paul Fleming, and today we're continuing our discussion of Indigenous dispossession, land-grant universities, and Cornell University. We have with us today Professor Michael Whitkin, a member of the Redcliffe Band of Lake Superior Ojibwa and past director of the Program in Native American Studies at the University of Michigan, where he's a professor in the Departments of American Culture and History. Before we start talking about individual tribes, I think we need to have a national conversation that centers on the fact that the land-grant universities, which are considered foundational to a republic, this was the idea, right? That we had to have public education. That piece of the republic was directly taken from dispossessed full Indian land. That needs to be a conversation of what it means, what does the nation owe to Native people. We also welcome back John Parmenter, Associate Professor of History at Cornell, who will help lead the discussion today. Hi, Paul. Great to have you back, John. Thank you very much. So last time we talked with John about the dispossession of indigenous land, especially in Wisconsin, that formed the overwhelming basis of Ezra Cornell's Moral Act script purchases, and thus the foundation of Cornell. With Michael Whitkin, we have a double expert to further elaborate this crucial and rather unknown history. Michael has just finished a project on the 19th century Ojibwa treaties, including the treaties between 1837 and 1847, whose land was purchased shortly thereafter by Ezra Cornell to help found the land-grant university in his namesake. Moreover, Michael is a direct lineal descendant, fifth-generation grandson of one of the key signatories of the 1842 treaty that created the Red Cliff Reservation in Wisconsin, which is his home community. So let's get right into it. The treaties with the Ojibwa were somewhat unique at the time, insofar as they weren't removal treaties. That is, the Ojibwa were allowed to stay on their lands. Rather, these treaties focused on natural resources. It was about the rights to timber and mining. I wonder, Michael, if you could give us some more information about these treaties and their specifics, since it's precisely the rights to the resources, especially timber, that was so important to Cornell. Sure. Also, another word for Ojibwe is Anishinaabe, which is Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people would mean a real human being. And the Anishinaabe people are spread throughout the Great Lakes. And part of what happens is when the United States takes possession of what comes to be the Northwest Territory, so the land between the Mississippi Valley and the Appalachian Mountains, and they create this Northwest Ordinance as a way to sort of uh, take that land and turn it into public domain and then open that public domain for settlement. That process imagines a sort of an empty wilderness, which in fact, it, it does not exist. So the U.S. runs into and actually suffers two devastating military defeats in the immediate aftermath of the revolution, where they come to grips with the fact that they need to deal with, treat with Native people, that they haven't conquered them. The, the Treaty of Paris that ended the revolution and, and granted this territory the U.S. doesn't mean it's realizable as a public domain. So the U.S. creates this Northwest Ordinance, and in places where uh, the Northwest Territory connects to the Mississippi and therefore to U.S. markets, places like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, they rapidly become states because they reach the 60,000 white settler population. And so there's a lot more pressure. Indian peoples do get removed from those territories. But Michigan Territory, which is north of the Ohio, doesn't naturally connect to, until the Erie Canal, doesn't really connect to U.S. markets. So there's just much less pressure. And so part of what happens with these treaties is that it's not until 
posterior canal that there's a pressure to settle in Michigan, even less pressure to settle in Wisconsin. And as you noted, to the extent there is settlement, it tends to be in the southern part of those uh, territories or states. And the northern part of the territories are not particularly good, well-suited for farming, but they do realize at some point that they are excellent pineries. And the Upper Peninsula is a copper-rich area, but it's not until you have the infrastructure that will allow you to remove those uh, resources that there's any pressure to do that. So one of the things that happens is the Ojibwe are just not pressured to accept removal. God, that's really interesting because I, I think, you know, the idea that it was dependent upon the Erie Canal and infrastructure being in place to first kind of find these, what's called exploitable or settleable in a kind of contemporary important context. But yeah, what we'd like to learn more about is the importance of the natural resources. And as you said, there was an invitation to remove, but not a demand or a forced removal. And that, that interface between, on the one hand, this desire for natural resources, the, the, the Ojibwe having resources that are really important to them, and wanting to stay in close proximity to them for their traditions and for their economy and all sorts of things. And, and so therefore, that kind of tension between the Ojibwe still being there and colonists, settlers trying to get at the resources and how that tension worked out. And to think about that just, you know, first in the 1840s, but then how that progressed in the 1860s and the 1880s, you know, because there's a, I'm sure there's a history to the unfolding of the effects of these treaties that'd be really interesting to hear about. Sure. So as I mentioned, places like Ohio settled super fast. Ohio is a state by 1803. I mean, it doesn't even go through a territorial period because there's already 60,000 people. Michigan not only are there less settlers, but basically the economic engine for Michigan territory uh, after it's preached in 1805 is the fur trade. The fur trade only works if Indian people are still living like Indian people. So there's no forced removal. There's no civilizing process. And so giving example as late as uh, 1820, so that's 15 years after Michigan's been created as a territory, uh, the white population of Michigan territory is 9,000 people. 9,000 white people. And that's Michigan territory, which would actually have been Michigan, Wisconsin, and parts of Minnesota. So at that point, you could imagine if you were 20 years old when you're, the territory was formed in 1805, um, you know, 15 years later, when you're 35, if you're an Anishinaabe person, you're still in the demographic majority. If you go to Detroit, just white people, but anywhere else you go, Sault Ste. Marie, somewhere else, um, Mackinac, it's, it's a native space. And then between uh, 1820, and then say the 1840, that flips. And by 1840, I believe the, the lower peninsula alone, the population is 85,000 in Michigan. So within your lifetime, you would see a radical shift. Um, so one of the things that happened is as this shift happens after 1826, and there's more pressure to cede territory, to cede title and put it into circulation. In the 1830s, when they're making those treaties at 36, is a big treaty in Michigan. Um, that precedes the 37 Treaty in Wisconsin. Uh, and they asked the people in Michigan uh, to consider the idea that they'll remove uh, west of the Mississippi. And they also make that treaty with a sunset for reservations that will end in five years. But the treaty also contains a provision that any land that's ceded but not settled as private property, uh, Native peoples retain the right to hunt, fish, and harvest resources. So that treaty is accepted in part because the Ojibwe are guaranteed that they'll, they'll renegotiate the sunset and they'll make permanent reservations, which they do. And then the 1837 treaty, which is the first of the treaties in Wisconsin, 
that Cornell benefits from, they don't even make an effort to to ask for removal or ask them to consider removal because it's just too little pressure uh, or settlement. What they want is access to the pine lands. So the Ojibwe's negotiating that that treaty make the same provision. They basically say they want the right to harvest maple sugar, harvest wild rice, hunt and fish. So they make the deal that any land that is not private property, that's public land, um, they can retain those use rights to. And so that's uh, that's what happens in 1832. It's you know the other thing I would I would stop and say here, these trees are, are really coercive. So one of the things that happens is the 1836 treaty that I mentioned, Michigan, one of the ways they affect that treaty is they remove the leadership and take them to Washington, D.C. So they can take them out of their home communities and put more pressure on them. They also use fur traders who are usually intermarried into the communities to put pressure on them to cede land. And the fur traders are usually trying to induce them to sign these treaties because they can claim portions of the annuity to cover so-called debt that has been unpaid. So they can, they're going to make cash money off these treaties. So there's a lot of coercion that goes on. The later treaties, 1842 and 1854 treaties in Wisconsin that my relative signed, he flat out says, no, I won't sign it. And he's essentially told by the treaty commissioner that, look, we're going to take the land whether you want it or not. But this way you, you could have compensation for it. And the deal that he makes is that, okay, you have to put an article into the treaty that promises we will be removed from our homeland. And that's what they successfully sort of negotiated, both at the use rights and that they, they don't want us to sell land, but if you're going to force me to do it, I'll only do so if you're going to guarantee that I won't be removed. So, I mean, that's the kind of backdrop to how these treaties get made. So I was going to say, Michael, one of the most interesting things to me in your Infinity of Nations book is even though these treaties were not surrender treaties, not or not removal treaties, I should say, uh, and people were able to stay in place, um, you still talk a lot about how they did uh, have a significant economic and, and political impact on on the people um, in terms of, you know, how former means of providing a living for themselves and assembling political authority um, still underwent really drastic changes due to the changes that were brought about by the treaty. And I wondered if you could elaborate a bit on that for us. Sure. A project lecture that I just finished, I touched on this in my first book, the second book that I just wrote. One of the things that's interesting about Michigan and Wisconsin, as opposed to, say, think of other famous removal era uh, territory, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, those Native peoples occupied land that was valuable for land itself. It was being turned into you know, cotton production. One of the things that happens with Ojibwe, like I said, there's, the, the land isn't so much valuable, so there's less pressure on removal. But the other thing that begins to happen is what I mentioned before, this annuity process ends up being super lucrative for white people. So in other words, the 1836 treaty that I just mentioned, the first payment of $40,000 annuities, less than $2,000 actually makes it to the tribe with the first payment. Traders claim, literally claim like the other $38,000 as compensation for debt that they're owed. Then in addition to that, when they do the treaty uh, payments, a portion of that is cash money. So those white people get that cash money claimed as debt. But they're also the same people. The part of the annuity is provisions, so uh, food supplies, and also trade goods, up to often $20,000, $30,000 worth of provisions and trade goods in a treaty. Well, the people who supply that to the federal government, same group of traders. 
So they're making money on both ends of this. It's in, in my second book, it's what I call a kind of a political economy of plunder. Basically, it doesn't take long for state officials, territorial officials, fur traders to realize that the Indians are far more valuable if we leave them in place and then sort of keep it as an ongoing colonial project. This is the same thing that happens in 37. With that treaty, same thing, traders there intermarried with the tribes claim, I think, up to 100000 or more dollars in cash payment as part of the treaty settlement. And then they claim additional money through the annuity process that they claim as debt. And then they also provide those provisions that are part of the treaty. So they're essentially the thing that's fueling the economy in Michigan, Wisconsin, is the presence of Indian people and the sort of adjudication of their treaties and, and the provision of their allotment. So in other words, the government machine that gets set up, the bureaucracy to kind of manage Indian affairs, as it was referred to in the 19th century, really does become, in your view, a pretty substantial and profitable bureaucracy. Oh, yeah. There's far more money moving into either Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. There's more money that's put into those territories from this business of settling Indian treaties than is ever put in in terms of infrastructure payments for the legislature. And it's an annual thing. In fact, one of the biggest tragedies in Ojibwe history is the time when Minnesota officials tried to draw Ojibwe from Lake Superior to collect their annuities in Minnesota because they wanted them getting their annuities in Minnesota so that they could then spend it on, on uh, trade goods and provisions there. But they didn't adequately provide provisions for those people who were stranded in Minnesota and tried to walk back to their homelands. And over a thousand people died because they were exposed to winter. So it was lucrative enough that people were trying to make their home territories the place where annuities would be dispensed. Is there a point in the 19th century where you would say then, you know, we know what the, the treaty period here we're talking about happens largely between Wisconsin anyway, between 1837 and 1854. Um, at what point are you seeing people's traditional life ways undergo kind of a, a radical change? I mean, at what point would people have recognized that, you know, we're not able to live in the same way our parents, our grandparents uh, might have been? Is there is there a way to sort of talk about when that happened? As the state becomes more of a thing in the Northwest Territory, the kind of long season around that you could have once practiced where you would maybe leave Mackinac and go out into the prairies in Minnesota and then maybe even up into uh, what would now be Manitoba and then circle back through Hudson's Bay. You can't make those big, long arcs where you would be hunting over a period of a year or two because it's just increasingly um, difficult with the state formation, uh, increasingly making the kind of travel difficult. So one of the ways that people adapt, I think early on, uh, fishing becomes a really important um, part of a, a joy adaptation. There's a commercial fishing. Uh, maple syrup is uh, a, a commodity that they, a lot of people are making and selling to settlers. Um, so they adapt these sorts of things. At some point, people also start including seasonal rounds in the timber industry. That, I know, goes up through the 20th century where mental practice, still some version of seasonal rounds, they're hunting and they're fishing they're running trap lines, and then for part of the year, they're earning hard currency working in timber mills or, you know, fishing. You know, that kind of adaptation allows people to exist with a pretty traditional life for a long time. So we have a wage labor component to it then. One of the other big components, particularly for Native peoples in Wisconsin and Minnesota, is that the wild rice is a mainstay for their food source, and that sustains them through... Most of the 19th century, they're not utterly dependent on rations from the federal government because they have access to, to fishing and hunting, but also most especially wild rice. Where that gets damaged is in the latter part of the 19th century, 
as the timber loggers come in, they start storing logs in the water on lakes. And that ends up destroying a lot of the wild rice property. So mid to late 19th century, a lot of the wild rice beds get destroyed through the logging industry practices. And that's when they really begin to suffer in terms of being less able to be independent and become more dependent on government subsidies. Now, if we could maybe pivot a little bit to the personal level, if you're okay with that, Michael, um, since you are a member of the Red Cliff uh, Reservation, I'm just wondering, you know, how much time did you spend growing up there? How much time do you spend now? What's your relationship? I'm mostly there in the summers, mm-hmm. which is the more pleasant time to be there. Yeah. <laughs> Red Cliff is located on the water and the lake shore, so it's, it's a great place to visit in the summer. It's hard to be there in the winter. There's a lot of snow. It's really cold. Yeah. I think... A little under 6,000 people total in the community. I think less than 2,000 live on the reservation. It's a really remote place. Yeah. One of the things that Redcliffe has done that's been different than some other places is it's a pretty seasonal traffic, but what they do is they do a lot of ecotourism. There's a part of the national park that they've incorporated as a tribal national park. We talked kind of about the trajectory from the mid-19th century up to the early 20th century as far as kind of the changing economic landscape and opportunities or changing or lack of opportunities. And what would you say is the primary economic motor, if there is one, you know, now in the 21st century for the Red Cliff? I think it totally depends. There's local service economy stuff. Yeah. There's the tourism-related economy. Um, there's, there's actually still a fishery. So that's still part of people's economic life. Yeah. But it would be hard, like it'd be hard to be a professor yeah. there, for example. So, I mean, I'm wondering, since we're talking about this in relationship to Cornell and the founding of Cornell and the things that the folks from High Country have dug up and John has dug up, as far as where you trace a direct line between these treaties from the 1830s, 1840s, and the very shortly thereafter, Ezra Cornell buying these lands and the very, therefore, a direct relationship between these two histories. Um, the land grant university and the secession of native territory. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, if on an anecdotal basis, not speaking for the tribe and not as a representative, but on an anecdotal basis, whether the treaties are part of the collective consciousness, if they're part of the conversation in the community, or is that just long forgotten history? It's kind of yes and no. I, I mean, people are conscious of treaty rights. Yeah. And people were super conscious of uh, those usufruct rights. And this was, in fact, the, the basis for a series of court cases that go from 1983 to 1991, where Anishinaabe people, Ojibwe people, sort of relitigated and got permission to continue with the use of our rights that had been awarded to them in the, these 19th century treaties. So people are hyper-conscious of those treaty rights, hyper-conscious of the government-to-government relationship between tribal communities and the federal government, and went to court, basically, to insist, because the pushback on the treaty rights, exercising them, uh, spearfishing and that kind of thing uh, was from local communities who were really there was there was actually was what prompted me to go to grad school. So a lot of people in the beginning in the eighties began yeah. uh, spearfishing, you know, off reservation on these territories that we're talking about, and they met with a lot of protests. A lot of northern Wisconsin, you know, you asked what the political economy is for northern Wisconsin for native as non-native people. A lot of it's linked to you know, the, the seasonal sport fishing, stuff like that. So there was a lot of resistance to Indians exercising that, a lot of at times violent resistance. And to me, it was shocking because it's the place that I always thought it was the most native place in the world. So it wasn't there year-round. To go there was like to really experience um, going into the heart of Ojibwe country. 
So I was always dumbfounded that there were these people who had grown up alongside Native peoples on reservations and could not understand that there was a difference in terms of uh, the rights and privileges they had as indigenous people, the settler population didn't have. I, I thought it was dumbfounding. I mean, one of the protests that there's a lot of, you know, kind of crazy racist uh, signage when people would show up to protest and there was a Custer should have finished the job. Oh, God. But, but what struck me is that's just not the racism of it, which is expected. But it was that, for me, it was this person in Wisconsin who thought that that's what Indians were to him. It was people who existed in the Great Plains, who looked like, you know, crazy horse, who, uh, you know, fought Custer, not people who were living on the Great Lakes and harvesting wild rice and fishing. And I was like, you know, it's, it's amazing that you could grow up here and that history, that indigenous history, I mean, you know, at a time when James Fenimore Cooper's writing on the early Republic, everyone thought of the Great Lakes as an indigenous place. I mean, it's the backdrop for his book. But by the time we get to the 20th century, now suddenly it's not. Um, so it really prompted me to want to go back to, to get a PhD in this whole experience. You know, actually, I remember those battles. I grew up in Wisconsin. I remember all the big newspaper coverage of that. And it was very heated. And there, as you say, there was yeah. complete non-understanding yeah. on the white settler side. Like, yeah. nobody got it. Yeah, I don't know if you remember it. I used a bunch of stuff that was circulating at the time from the advertisement or the flyers that were like, uh, save a walleye spirit in Ojibwe or Chippewa. Right. Um, I have a bunch of that kind of stuff that was circulating that I have digitized and used when I teach my class. Fantastic. Well, I was going to say, these days you wouldn't, such overt racism would seem uh, surprising, but then again, that's that's just not true. Um, <laughs> overt racism has made a comeback. So right. Um, right. yeah, so I'm, I'm surprised, but I'm also not surprised. Right. right. So that means Cornell's relationship to the Ojibwe, to the Red Cliffs, to Northern Wisconsin, was that ever really a topic amongst the community or is that not? Yeah. No. no. So like I said, the treaty rights, yeah. people are hyper-aware of the treaty rights and the, the rights that are here in the treaties. Yeah. You know, they're also hyper-aware of the dispossession that the treaty facilitated. Yeah. But they're not really aware of the sort of afterlife of that land, other than, the, you know, knowing that it was the logging was a big deal. Yeah. And I, I got to say, I was shocked when I learned it. I, I didn't know that. And I have to admit, I don't know about you guys, but... My understanding, until I had dug into this research, my understanding of land-grant colleges was kind of poor. I think a lot of ours were. I mean, I really think the article has just ripped it open. And I think we're just beginning to sort of appreciate how complicated and how deeply fraught this history is uh, in so many ways, in so many places. I mean, and Cornell is just one of, as you know, many of these uh, that has its own particular historical trajectory with regard to this. But boy, I mean, I'm actually right now going through the records of the Western Land Committee. And it's really quite something to see the machine, the bureaucratic machine that was created here, just going to town, extracting revenue from this. This It was just seen as a resource. And I mean, there was very little reflection on what was happening. Um, it was just, hey, like, how much money are we making here? How much can we get in? And it was, uh, I mean, I've still got a lot to go. But just the part that I've been able to get to so far is is really just amazing. The scale of the operation, the intensity with which it was pursued, really quite something. You know, I think I would imagine lots of people who hear the land grant university idea and know that it was the land grants were what founded these universities or founded the endowments. Probably thought, like I think, even as a historian, I thought, okay, this means you were literally transferred land, you built the university on that land. 
you don't realize that actually, no, it's land that's been dispossessed, moved into the public domain, and then you're buying scripts. It's been turned into a financial instrument, um, essentially. And on a smaller scale, the same thing happened in Michigan. Michigan, the initial land grant that uh, funded the university was part of the 1817 treaty. I think for a long time, people presumed that was an actual grant of land, but it was a grant of land, not where they built the university, but rather you know, a script that was given to them for uh, a section that was then sold and the profits of that were used to finance the university. Um, what happened on Cornell, but on a smaller scale. But yeah, it is, it's impressive the extent to which um, this land was monetized, turned into financial instruments and then circulated. I don't think um, Native people are aware of that shelf life. And I, I think people are learning just as the scholar community is learning about you know, in the wake of this research. Well, I mean, that, that raises a really interesting question for us because we as an institution and those of us in the American Indian and Indigenous Studies program here have been trying to think about ways in which we could reach out to the communities that have been affected by this. And, you know, this is obviously, as it is for everybody, this is new territory. I mean, we haven't, we've no experience with this. And we wondered if you had any insights uh, as to what some productive strategies might be for us to approach in a formal way the communities that have been affected by the treaties and the dispossession and begin a conversation about how we might move forward from this. You know, first off, the personal connection has been mind-blowing to me as well. I mean, that my direct relative signed the treaty that created these landscapes, that my son goes to this college. All of these were things that, you know, the level of personal connection is stunning. Yeah, I can imagine. In terms of the, the larger conversations, what I would like to see uh, as somebody who is, I'm not directly in Cornell, but my, you know, my wife and son are, are part of the Cornell community. I, I, and since this was so, in fact, pivotal or foundational to Cornell establishing itself, I, to me, the thing that I would want to see would be Cornell uh, taking a leading role and starting a national conversation, because this needs to be part of a national conversation. Before we start talking about individual tribes, I think we need to have a national conversation that centers on the fact that the land-grant universities, which are considered foundational to a republic, this was the idea, right, that we had to have public education, and here's the resource by which we're going to create this thing that makes the republic work as a republic, and the fact that that piece of the republic was directly taken from this possessed full Indian land, that needs to be a conversation, what it means, what does the nation owe to Native people? I mean, I know... Michigan, like I mentioned, as a result of that relationship, Michigan has a tuition waiver program for any person who's part of a fairly recognized enrolled member of a tribe, they get a tuition waiver. But before we even got to that point, I would think we're at such a beginning stage to understand this, as John was saying, I would like to see Cornell you know, take a lead, have a national conversation about what this means. There are places, there are other Western land-grant universities that also similarly profited from yeah, I think, you know, Berkeley has set up a pretty interesting, um, they've gotten a few things off the ground out there with their particular conversations with regard to California. But I do think, that, I do find that very interesting because, you know, land-grant colleges are a national phenomenon. Um, and, and it would be, I think, you know, that, that's a great idea um, to, for us to kind of think about how we could sort of go about that. But I, I can see your point that, that, I mean, because this is just so new and, and so, you know, it's just such uncharted territory that, um, it would be better to, I think, get people together and to begin talking about it on a national level and find out ideas from other places and go that way. 
I think we have to have a, a national conversation, in part for the things that, Paul, you, you and I were talking about before about Wisconsin and that ugly history. If you don't educate people, they, they're going to think, what? Why are we giving the Indians this was so long ago? Yeah. So I think you got to start having a national conversation about what does this mean? I mean, you know, the other thing that's linked but similar is, you know, the Western expansion is also very much linked to, say, the free soil movement. Right. Right. So in the non-slave states, there's the idea um, that the way a republic works is you need to have land available so that everyday citizens have the possibility of acquiring land. And this is what you need in a republic. You need independent citizens who own their own land, who aren't controlled by the corporations or labor bosses. So this idea of the free soil party is premised on the idea that there is a free soil, free labor. Yeah. Uh, and the whole free soil is a synonym for you know Indian land yeah. that, that's been converted. So it's not just a level of the land grant, but this is a national phenomenon. As America expands west, American expansion, Americans understood the republic as something that needed to expand, that as the population grew, would require new territory. And that, that people believe they've been given this God-given space that was, you know, I'm using air quotes here, unsettled, uh, and that the Republic then was bringing modernity to an unsettled continent, and this was part of the mission. And, and so I think having that national conversation, realizing the extent to which the Republic and its foundation um, depended on dispossessing Native people, and the primary institutions or primary parts of this uh, Republican experiment, like the land-grant college, utterly dependent on dispossessing Indian people. Yeah. So having the national conversation, I would think something that would be ideal to me would be something along the lines of the 1619 project that looks at both combination of scholarly work, talking about this phenomenon, and popular journalism. There's some really excellent uh, Native journalists out there working now, Rebecca Nagel, uh, Julian Brave, Noise Cat. Um, there are a bunch of Native journalists who are working. Yeah. Um, so some sort of combination that has a national focus would be helpful. That sounds fantastic and really interesting because, I mean, one of the things that hit me as you were talking, Michael, is that, you know, it's not just that the land grant is a public good. It's a democratic good. And this free land available is part of a democratic experiment. And needing to think together the growth and the foundation of democracy together with the dispossession of Native Americans, I just think it's absolutely essential that these things be brought together. Because, you know, as we we're saying, just with the anecdote from Wisconsin growing up, from the white settler side, it was like, why do they have rights that we don't have? It was considered this outrage, you know, that the Natives could do spearfishing and fish at times that we can't fish at. And just just the lack of consciousness there is so huge. Um, to bring it to a wider perspective, I think it would be just essential. Yeah, no, I think it, for sure. And one thing that's funny about that, I mean, so you remember how, how angry people were and how there was a lot of violence. Yeah. The funny thing now is if you go to Redcliffe, like I mentioned, they have a summer industry on tourism. So now then you would have people, you know, on the one road under the reservation, you'd have people protesting or out at the lakes. Now if you go to that reservation in the summer, there's – white families walking around. They're just, you know, around on the reservation because they're visiting the national park. Yeah, People have gotten to a place now where like they are past that. They're now somebody who would have been really angry in 1988. Now they're taking their family to uh, vacation there in 2020. So yeah, yeah, that definitely requires some education. Yeah. Fantastic. John, anything you want to add? 
No, I think that's a really uh, great idea. You know, the thought that occurred to me was some kind of national conference might also be something that would be productive where um, we were it, once we're able to have people come to campus to get people here from land grant institutions, from affected communities and begin having this kind of conversation at, at a level. And, you know, I think because as you know, the, the evidence establishes that Cornell is the the leading figure here that it is uh, incumbent upon us to sort of take a leadership role there. And I think that's right. Yeah. So that's a great, that's a great thought. And I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your time today. Wonderful to, to have you on here with us and to learn from you. Sure. And I'm really looking forward to the new book. Um, can, can we, pl- can we plug it for you? Yeah. It's called Seeing Red, Indigenous Land, Western Expansion and the Political Economy of Plunder. When is Seeing Red going to appear, Michael? I'm doing copy edits right now, so I'm almost done. So I probably will have it in production into the fall and probably a year from there. Okay. It takes a while. I've got an article called Seeing Red in the Journal of Early Republic that's out right now that actually covers the 1837 treaty. Yeah. And looks at that one treaty, but that's a micro example of the entire treaty process. All the treaties that Cornell benefits from. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you for the conversation, Michael. Thanks for having me. And thanks for joining me again in the pod, John. Thank you very much. Great having you both. The Humanities Pod is a production of Cornell's Society for the Humanities, introducing you to some of the new work, the current conversations, and the latest ideas of the humanists at and around Cornell. The pod is produced by Tyler Lurie Spicer. Our music is from the continuing story of Counterpoint by David Borden, performed and recorded by Mother Mallet's Portable Masterpiece Company. Our thanks go to Cornell's College of Arts and Science and the Cayuga Nation. Cornell is located on the traditional homelands of the Goyacono, i.e. the Cayuga Nation. We acknowledge the painful history of Goyacono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Goyacono, people past and present, to these lands and waters.